morning, everybody. So lovely to see you all, and happy Easter. Christ is risen. Yes, he is. This is the high point of the Christian calendar. Today we celebrate that uh, after the events of Good Friday, as uh, Jesus died on the cross and his dead body was placed in a tomb, just when it seemed that death and Satan had secured victory over God, we today celebrate that three days later that sealed tomb was found empty. Jesus has risen up. He's overcome the power of death. He now has complete mastery over death. It says in his word that he holds the keys to death and Hades. And that means that for us, Easter represents that for those who trust in Jesus, we can now have life and relationship with Jesus fully and for all eternity. Christ is risen in victory. Death is overcome. Hallelujah. And if I say nothing else today, that should be enough to fill you with joy and give you purpose for your life. The cross of Jesus Christ stands at the center of the Easter story, of course. It stands at the center of yours and my story. It stands at the center of Florina's story. In fact, it stands at the center of all human history. And it speaks victory and peace and freedom and goodness and mercy and salvation over all who will believe on Jesus and what he accomplished at the cross. He removed our wrongdoing, restores our relationship with God, and defeats death and Satan. And the Easter story is particularly important at a time in human history like this, with pandemics and plagues and wars and economic crises, that what stands above all of these things is the Easter story, the death-defeating cross of Jesus Christ in a world that is, looks like it's sometimes gone quite mad, drunk on its own power, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but for we who are being saved, we know it's the power, it's the very power of God. You want to find yourself on the right side of that equation because the Easter story is good news for those who know and love Jesus. This morning we're going to be back into the books of 1 and 2 Kings as we work our way through the Old Testament, which is what we're doing this year. And this portion of the Old Testament preaching series in Kings actually takes up six weeks. It's the biggest portion of our preaching series as we work through the Old Testament. And it's a really significant part of the story to see what God is doing through his people as he unfolds his plan to save and to gather a people for himself who he will love and who will love him and with whom he will dwell. That's, of course, the big story, the meta-narrative over all human history. So what I'm going to try and do today is just try and help us to kind of be, be placed into this period of history, this period of the kings. And so to do that, I'm going to give us a bit of an Old Testament overview so that you have some context for where we've come from, where we are, and of course where we're going. And then I'm going to zoom straight into uh, a specific story of three characters in the book of Kings. And we'll talk about those three characters and what we can learn from them. And then I'm going to try and bring all of that back to how it relates to us here in the 21st century and how all of this points to and centers around the events of Easter Sunday, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and what that, of course, means for us as well. Okay, let's dive in. Here's the uh, big picture overview of the Old Testament, the history of humanity 
pre the birth of Jesus. And I've highlighted what I personally consider to be the five key events of the Old Testament, just to help to place us in the story. There's obviously much more that goes on in this, but I think these are the five key things. So as you can see, at the very start, we've got the creation of the universe. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and that goes very wrong as Satan enters in and deceives them, and sin enters into the world for the first time, which separates man from God and creates all the problems that we see in our world today. Then we've got Abraham, the man who God chooses to gather a people through. And God says to Abraham that he will be the father of all God's people for all of human history. That's a really important promise made by God to man, and we'll see that played out throughout the rest of the Bible. And then we have the exodus of God's people from Egypt. Moses leads them out from under the slavery of Pharaoh as they cross the Red Sea, and the Egyptians, the enemies of God and his people, are completely wiped out by God. Really significant events in shaping the formation and the psyche of the ancient Israelites and working out what God's doing through his people. Then we have the formation of the nation of Israel, as these very same Israelites take the land and they set up Jerusalem as the capital and the temple of God is built and it's established with all of its priests and worship and sacrificial systems. And importantly for today, a monarchy is established. And then the kings are set in place and they begin to rule over the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, that make up the people of God. And the kings are put in place in both territories and their job is to wisely rule the people and to protect them from enemies. And most importantly, to ensure that the worship of God is maintained. And what we've been hearing over these past few weeks is that this has not gone well. What the whole of human history has taught us so far is that there is a problem. We have rebelled against God and his perfect ways, and for the most part, followed our own desires and gone our own way. That's the human condition since sin entered into the world in Eden. We've all been kind of diseased with this innate desire to go our own way and have it our way and make ourselves the God of our own lives. This disease is buried deep in the heart of mankind, all of us. And we all need a solution to this problem. So the kings just do what every other human has ever done. They make their own choices and their own decisions, and for the most part, these are not in line with the plans and the purposes of God. And so, consequently, things go wrong. Wars and injustices and inequalities, and most significantly, the worship of false gods. And this has been going on ever since the start, and it's still going on in the period of kings, and as we'll see today, it's still going on now. And so we we kind of see this cycle in the Old Testament where the people promise to obey God, and then they don't, then they worship false gods, and then God warns them not to through the prophets, but they carry on anyway, and then they get themselves into all sorts of trouble, and then they cry out to God, and God in his mercy sends a deliverer and makes a way to release the people from the self-inflicted captivity they keep finding themselves in. We see that with Moses and Joshua and others. And the people are grateful, and then they worship again for a while, and then the human heart rears up again, and the whole sorry cycle begins again. This is the way of the world, and we'll see today that it's no different now. We still follow this pattern. Yeah. 2 Kings 17 tells the 
sad story of uh, the people of God and how they ultimately end up being totally destroyed at one point in history. And the summary statement of that is this. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods. And one of the reasons I'm telling you this is because we're getting to a point in the story now where for the nation of Israel, this whole cycle of apostasy and rebellion and idol worship just gets completely out of hand. And so God will soon allow the nation to be overrun by marauders from Persia and Babylon, and Israel will become destroyed. The temple will be destroyed, and the people will be led in chains into exile, into what we now know to be Western Asia, under foreign kings and foreign gods. And this exile is a major theme of the Old Testament. In fact, almost all of the books of the prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Malachi, all of them are either warning the people pre-exile or telling them how to live in exile or reminding them how to live and worship post-exile. That's important to know, just as we camp for these six weeks in the book of Kings, that looming just over the horizon, the failure of these kings to do what is godly and right will result in defeat and exile and captivity for Israel again that the slavery that God had delivered them from in Egypt, they will, through their hard-heartedness and idol worship, walk straight back into again. So here we are. The books of 1 and 2 Kings outlines this period of history between the formation of Israel as a nation and the exile that destroys them. And it covers a 400-year stretch, and it outlines the reign of 38 kings and one ruling queen over these two northern and southern kingdoms of the people of God. And their job, remember, is to do the people good, to represent the kingship of God, and to ensure that people maintain the worship of and the ways of God, and very importantly, to keep the land free of idolatry and wickedness. That's how these kings are to be assessed. And after 400 years of kings, here's the scores. In the southern kingdom, Judah where Jerusalem and the temple is, we get 19 kings and one ruling queen who span 400 years. And in terms of good monarchs, the score is four. Four out of 20 in that entire period who encourage people in the ways of God and protect the temple and keep the land free from idol worship. Four out of 20. In the northern kingdom, we get 19 kings who span about 400 years And in terms of good kings, the score is zero. Not one king in that entire period in the north in Israel keeps God's ways. They all ignore God, or worse, they set up temples to worship false gods. The entire period of the kings, with one or two bright lights here and there, is epitomized by bad kings who oppress the people, who defy God, and who allow idol worship to flourish in the land. Just think back 400 years. We have to go back to the time of Shakespeare. That would be the length of time that we're covering here. And in the land where God has placed his people, brought them out of slavery, placed his people, set up the temple and established the kings, only four out of 39 can be said to have done the job that they were intended for. And into this, 
God sends the prophets to warn the people repeatedly. Over and over, the prophets warn the people to repent, to turn their back on idols, and to return to God and be forgiven, or else disaster will come on them. Now, that's an awful lot of historical background, but it's important because there are some really important themes in here that I want to tease out. And I specifically want to look at what happens, being that it's Easter Sunday, and what happens when the good king comes and about what happens when we worship false idols and false gods. This period of the Bible goes on and on about the worship of false gods, and so it's an obviously important theme for us to consider. And at this point, you might be asking, well, what's any of that got to do with me? I don't worship golden calves or the fertility god Baal, who's constantly mentioned in these books. But again, I'd say that the human heart is the human heart. Nothing significant has changed about us in all history. We might now wear suits instead of robes and drive nice air-conditioned cars instead of chariots, but we're fundamentally still the same people. We have to be careful not to look back on these stories and these people with a kind of modern intellectual snobbery and think of their behavior as that of a primitive people without realizing that these themes and behaviors are still true for us today. We still in our own way, rebel against God. We still worship false idols, just different ones. And we still need a good king to come and deliver us and to establish worship in our hearts. There's a stark warning about ignoring this fact in Romans 8 verse 7. It says, the mind that is governed by the flesh, don't stop thinking about yourself, the self-seeking, self-satisfying heart, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it, since you'll focus on yourself. So there's warning here, and there's encouragement too. There's always warning and encouragement in God's story. So here we go as we unpack some of that. For the most part, today we'll be in 2 Kings 9 to 2 Kings 12 this morning. And uh, if you were here last week, you'll know this starts, this period is uh, the period of history in Israel where Ahab and Jezebel are king and queen. And uh, they're in the northern kingdom, and they've opposed God's people, and they've broken down the places of worship, and they've filled the land with the worship of a god called Baal. We talked about that last week, as I said. And today, I want to introduce you to three new characters. The first character is Jehu. Jehu is a military commander who is appointed by the prophet Elisha to become king. And Elisha goes to him, and he anoints him as king, and as he does so, he gives him a very particular job. This is his job description. It says, The prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants and prophets and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. Basically, what God is saying is, Jehu, it's time to clean house. Rise up as king and go and kill Ahab and Jezebel, and I'm going to take out all of Ahab's descendants, and I'm going to avenge my people uh, who've been killed and their blood has been shed at their hands, and we're going to destroy the worship of Baal, and we're going to restore the worship of the one true God, Yahweh. In a time of intense oppression of God's people, in a time when the worship of false gods rules in the land, God is again going to send a deliverer, this time in the form of Jehu. 
Meanwhile, in the southern kingdom, the second person in our story is the only ruling queen throughout this period. She's the queen of the southern kingdom, Judah. Her name is Athalia. Now, it's a bit of an understatement to say that Athalia was a bad queen. Athalia is an idol-worshipping queen of the worst kind, and she is hell-bent on wiping out the worship of God and destroying, particularly, the line of King David, because that's the line, that's the family line that God has promised to fulfill his purposes through. So she figures, if I can wipe out the lineage of King David, then God loses. If there's no Davidic lineage... There's no fulfillment of God's plan to gather a people, to send a Messiah, and to establish relationship between him and his people forever, as he had promised. If I kill off David's line, in essence, I kill off God. And the third person in the story is Joash. Joash is the boy king who succeeds Athaliah, and he's fundamentally a good king, certainly for the first half of his reign, and his job, just like the other kings, is to rid the land of idols and to restore the worship of the one true God, which for the most part he does. And these three characters show up in the story in that order, so we're just going to track through a bit of their story. Firstly, Jehu. We've already read about God's commission on Jehu to go and destroy the family line of the wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And this is intended to avenge the death of God's prophets that they've killed and to begin the process of cleaning house, of removing idolatry from the land and restoring the worship of God. So Jehu rides out. It's an amazing story to meet the the reigning king, Joram, is the reigning king of the north, and Ahaziah, the reigning king of the south. Those are both descendants of Ahab, by the way. And there's this awesome confrontation where they come face to face, and they call out to, Ah to Jehu, is it peace? And Jehu is just filled with the vengeance of God, against whom all this idolatry and rebellion has been committed, replies, what do you have to do with peace? What peace can there be so long as the sorceries and idol worship of your mother Jezebel are so many? And then he takes his bow and arrow and kills King Joram. And then he chases down King Ahaziah and he shoots him too. And the rout of the house of Ahab and Jezebel begins. And then Jehu rides off to the palace where Jezebel lives and she sticks her head out of the window and she kind of abuses him and he calls on the palace guards and he says, throw her down. And in 2 Kings 9.33 we read this. So they threw her down and some of her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Happy Easter, everybody. <laughs> now this is really important because we're supposed to see something even in this. All throughout the Old Testament, gods and kings rise up, gods, against the one true God, and they try to emulate his power and his ways. And one of the things we see is that blood is sprinkled in the temple by the priest as a way to have sins forgiven and relationship with God restored. And of course, in the New Testament, it's the spattered and shed blood of Jesus that buys us life. And the author wants us to see that here we are with Jezebel, the high priestess of the false god, and her spattered blood brings death and destruction because that's what idolatry leads to. In God, there is life and forgiveness, and in anything else, there is death and destruction. So God has sent a deliverer, Jehu, and Jehu will remove the stain of idolatry in the land and deal with the enemies of God's people. And so off he goes, and then he rounds up 70 sons of Ahab, and he slaughters them. 
And then he goes around and he rounds up all the priests of the false god Baal and he has them killed too. And there is this sense that through all this bloodshed and violence and idol worship, that God is doing what God has always said he would do. He's cleaning the house of idolatry. He's protecting his people. He's restoring worship. And he's gathering a people to himself. This is super important to see in an age like ours. It would be very easy to look at the state of the world and despair. I very often do myself. In a world filled with idolatry, you don't have to look very far to see how the love and worship of self has resulted in arrogance and pride. The arrogance and pride that leads to the promotion uh, of self over the care and well-being of others. The rebellion that has led to, um, sorry, the, uh, the pride that has led to rebellion against all forms of wisdom or authority has led to wars and injustices and invasions. But it's critically important to remember that the world has often been like that. And that the plan of God emerges in spite of those circumstances. And the worship of God is secured even through the darkest times. And the people of God emerge victorious throughout. Not long after this period in history, the people of God are whittled down to just 7,000 people. We'll get to that another day. But here we still are, thousands of years later. God will have his victory. And through Christ, his plan to gather a people for himself and gather a people for his name is for all eternity rock-solidly safe and will come to be. In light of all the stuff going on in the story thousands of years ago, in light of all that's going on in the world today. This is what Psalm 46, 6 to 11 says. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. People of God, listen to the next verse, verse 7. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God is mighty and God is with his people. A little while later in the south, this queen emerges. Her name's Athalia, as I said, and the, the cycle goes on. The novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne once said that families are always rising and falling in America, and so too here in Israel. And Athalia is pretty bad news. She's actually a descendant through intermarriage of both King David and also of Ahab, and she is a worshipper of Baal, the false god, and she sees what's happening with Jehu and that the land is being cleared of idolatry and that the worship of God is being restored, and Ahaziah, who Jehu killed with a bow and arrow in the last story, was actually her son. So here's what happens, 2 Kings 11 verse 1. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. Okay, big deal, right? Everyone's dying, blood's being spattered and so on, families rise, families fall. So why not just take out the royal family of David and protect her throne and protect the worship of Baal? What's a little more killing? Everyone's doing it. Except that the royal family was her family. And so the royal family that she orders killed is all of her grandchildren. Now, I don't know about your grandmother. I don't have one anymore, but uh, if you do, hopefully this morning you traded chocolate eggs and pleasantries. 
I remember once my grandmother told me off for jumping in a puddle and getting soaked on my way to a party, but that's about as bad as it got. Athalia just says, grandchildren, off with their heads, all of them. But as I said, her grandchildren were also descendants of King David. And this is what God said to King David in 2 Samuel 7.16. Remember this promise. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's what God promised. God's promises always come to fruition. This is the house and these are the people that God has chosen to be his own. And this is the family through whom the Messiah will come, the deliverer who will come and rid us of all of our idolatrous sin and shame forever. So what's to be done? Well, enter Athalia's stepdaughter, who hides one of the grandsons, and his name is Joash, which means given by the Lord. And she has him cared for and raised And then comes the time when Joash is revealed to the world and anointed as the true king. And in 2 Kings 11, 14 to 16, we read this. She, Athalia, looked, and there was the king Joash, standing by the pillar, as the custom was. The officers and the trumpeters were beside the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Then Athalia tore her robes and called out, Treason! Treason! Jehoiada, the high priest, ordered the commanders who were in charge of the troops, Bring her out between the ranks and put to the sword anyone who follows her. So they seized her as she reached the place where the horses entered the palace ground, and there she was put to death. I don't know what it is about evil queens and horses and blood being spattered, but if you're planning on becoming an evil queen, my advice is to stay away from the farm and the Dorset Country Show and the New Forest. (laughs) When evil queens come into contact with horses, blood gets spattered. Anyway, goodbye, evil Queen Athalia, and hello, good King Joash. And King Joash starts his reign by restoring the covenant relationship between him and God and the people, and he promises to destroy the temple of the false gods and to restore the worship of God. And for the most part, things work out well for Joash and the people so long as they follow the ways of God, which is kind of how things start out. 2 Kings 12.2. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years that Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Good. But then in verse 3, the high places, however, the temples to the false gods, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. And I'm going to confess, after spending a considerable part of the week reading through the books of 1 and 2 Kings and seeing over and over again what happens when you disobey God, at this point I was like, oh my word, Joash, what are you doing and when are these guys going to learn? And so over the course of time, the idol worship continues. Joash himself starts to worship idols because that's what happened. If you don't deal with idols fully, they poke their greasy little heads out time and time again. And in verse 20 of the same chapter, it's the same sorry story. This is what happens when you trust in worthless idols rather than the living God. It says his officials conspired against him and assassinated him. Sigh. And goodbye, Joash. Okay, so what does all this idol worship and violence and spattered blood and assassination mean for us today? I'm glad you asked, and it's obvious when you think about it. Of course, it's Easter. There is chaos and compromise and idolatry and rebellion and wars and death and destruction all around for hundreds of years, and the people of God face threat 
and persecution, and just as, as has always been the case, God works in spite of this evil and wickedness, and his plan still comes to fruition. Bloodshed, war, pestilence, violence, persecution against the people of God, these aren't new things. They've always been here. We've just got 24-hour news and social media now, so it seems like a new phenomenon, but God has always been at work in spite of these things. Through the line of Joash, Jesus will one day emerge, and the plan of God continues, and God continues to gather his people and to create the means for us to know him and to be in relationship with him, and that leads us to the Easter story. We'll come back to that in just a moment, but for now, I just want to talk about the human condition, because I do recognize, knowing so many of you as I do, that in this room right now, there is going to be a whole world of pain and struggle and deathly destruction that people are facing personally, or they're anxious because the 24-hour news tells them the world's about to blow up, or you don't really know how the future's going to work out, or you don't know how you're going to pay the bills, or overcome this health condition, or repair this relationship, or combat this addiction. But just look at the people in the Book of Kings. It has always been like that. And God has always made a way for his people. Listen to these verses that are every bit as true for you today as they ever were, and let faith rise up in you. Deuteronomy 20, verse 4. For the Lord, your God, is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Well, how about this one directly from the mouth of Jesus? John 16, verse 33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Well, how about this beauty from Romans 8? Listen very carefully if you're feeling hopeless or anxious or alone this morning. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And here is the hope that sits at the heart of the Easter story for anyone here who says yes to Jesus. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? That's us. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Answer, no one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God right now and is also interceding for us. That means that anyone here who chooses to put their hope in Jesus today because he went to the cross, because he removed your sin and the shame and the guilt that comes from rebelling against God, that now you are completely, for all time, 100%, never going back, forgiven. And that means that right now, Jesus and the Father are talking about you. Jesus right now knows your failures and your anxious state and all that you're facing, and he's asking the Father to do you good and to sustain you in your faith and to sustain you in this world. That same chapter of Romans goes on like this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Shall Putin or COVID or rising gas prices or your emotions... Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
Paul says, for I am convinced, be convinced, church, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, no war, no illness, no anxiety, no hopeless situation, not even your own mess-ups, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why on earth would you place your hope and trust anywhere else? Why else would you trust idols like money or sex or power or Baal or what other people are doing or whatever you think might satisfy that deep longing in your soul to be loved by God over and above being loved by God? St. Augustine, the 4th century theologian, said that to put your trust in anything but God is like falling in love with the boat rather than the destination. He says that the boat will start to feel claustrophobic and it will eventually rot. Our hearts, he said, are made for another shore. That's how it is with anything in this world that we give primacy to in our trust and worship. That's basically what idolatry is. And as we've seen in the story, it just doesn't work. It ends in profound unhappiness and disappointment, or worse yet, horses and spattered blood. Idolatry leads to death. One writer says that when we learn to trust what we can only see with our eyes and calculate in our bank balances, what we're doing is we're, we're training ourselves to hope in what can only disappoint. Why would you do that? Only Christ gives life. And life can only be found by trusting in him and staying in him. And that's the purpose of Easter, that our Savior so knew our natural disposition to rebel against God and to place all of our hopes in the wrong things, things that lead us to death, that he would go to the cross on our behalf and die for us to make that situation right and give us hope and a secure future in him. That is the purpose of Easter, that he rose on the third day and overcame death and placed that same death beating victory over us like a robe that can't be removed is why we can say and believe what it says in Romans 8, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I don't necessarily know your story or what you're facing or your biography or your emotional makeup and how you handle what life throws at you, but this I do know over all those things. Jesus is Lord and he loves you. And he went to the cross for you. And he has opened up a way for you to be in relationship with God. And that relationship is free and it's available to you today. That's the good news of the Easter story. That's the greatest news. And it's the greatest gift that there ever was. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And if you don't yet know Jesus, if you haven't yet found life in him, today could be that day for you. Just say yes to him in your hearts. And then... <coughs> Come and talk to me or one of the leaders afterwards and we can help you to take the next steps in that relationship. And if you do know Jesus, but maybe you've just grown a little bit distant or cold or far from him, well, you know what to do because you know what he's like. Just reach out and take hold of him again. He loves to forgive. He loves to bless. He loves you. He's alive today. He is risen. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, ever interceding for us. Christ is alive. Let's pray. Why don't you stand with me?
King Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you so much that you saw us in our plight and our shame and our guilt in the pit of our own making, stuck in thick mud, unable to get out, and you said, I'm going to do something about that, because that's what love does. Thank you for coming down. Thank you for living like we did. Thank you for going to the cross on our behalf. Thank you for taking away our sin and our shame and our guilt. Thank you for opening the way to the Father. Thank you for inviting us in. Father, thank you for adopting us into your family. We are so incredibly grateful for all that you are. Thank you for the Easter story. Thank you that death now no longer has any victory, no longer has any sting, no longer has any victory over the life of the believer because Christ is alive and holds the keys to death and Hades. Jesus, be glorified. Amen.